Welcome to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast with your host, Steve Abramowitz, editor-in-chief of the Mill Creek View newspaper. Howdy, howdy. I'm Steve Abramowitz, and this is the Mill Creek View podcast. We are focusing on the volunteer state and our nation today with always an interesting person making a positive change in our community. This time, special guest, Senator Brent Taylor. Welcome to our People in the News, where I interview people who are making an impact and are lovers of truth. Today, as part of our Tennessee State Senate series with Majority Leader Jack Johnson, Senators Monty Fritz and Mark Pody, even Senator Keith Wagner of Washington State, we are talking with Senator Brent Taylor, District 31, Shelby County, which includes Memphis, the birthplace of rock and roll. Memphis isn't home to just rock and roll. It's also considered the birthplace of rap, jazz, gospel, and of course, the blues. Interesting fact, nearly 20% of the earliest artists who were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame were Memphis natives, the Bluff City. And Brent Taylor is a Republican member of the Tennessee State Senate, representing District 31. He assumed office on November 8th, 2022. His current term ends on November 3rd, 2026. He won in the general election on November 8th, 2022, 66.3 to 33.7 or 22,000 more votes against Ruby Powell Dennis, a Democrat. Born on August 9th, 1968, married to Kimberly, has two children, Northwest Mississippi Community College in the Mortuary Sciences uh, Department and is a funeral director in his day job. Senator, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. And I, I appreciate uh, your podcast. I've watched uh, numerous episodes and I really appreciate the fact that uh, you can get the unvarnished truth uh, here on your podcast, and and I appreciate that. Well, that's great, and even more important that you accepted to come on, knowing that. So that makes you really a uh, high standard in our eyes. We appreciate it very much. And we went from snow and that awful ice to rain, uh, which for me, coming from Seattle, no big deal. But uh, I guess you're holding up there in Nashville, away from home. I, I am. You know, I wound up. I, I, I outsmarted myself. I came up last Sunday trying to get ahead of the snow. And I got up here, and the moment I walked in my apartment, I got the text message that, that from the Senate that they were canceling all the activities <laughs> that week. So I looked at my my radar, and it had already started snowing back home in Memphis. So I wound up getting stuck up here for two days, and I finally uh, went home on Tuesday. I called the THP, and they said the roads were open enough I could get home, and so I went home Tuesday. Uh, so I was stuck up here for two days and my wife, she said, what did you eat? Because I know there's nothing in the apartment. I said, well, I survived on snow cream. So I'm <laughs> glad, to, glad to be up here and I was able to get some work done without uh, a lot of interruptions. So, Well, that's good. No distractions. And like a lot of things, Memphis and Shelby County got kind of the worst of it. So you're probably better off here for those two days and back there. Um, last session was a pretty messy affair uh, after a start that looked like it might repeat this uh, January on the House side, the snow closed things, like you said, for a week, and now it seems pretty calm. Do you think it'll be more civil this time compared to last time in the House or same the same again? I'm hoping so. I'm, you know, a lot of the the activity was confined over to the House side, and and certainly we got some of it because we had to walk through protesters and, and so forth to to get into the, the chamber. But most of that, the activity was a result of the house. Um, I I hope it's calmer, uh, but I, I think I'm being a bit optimistic. It probably will, once we get into the thick of things and start looking at legislation, particularly when it comes to 
legislation that animated the Justins and the Tennessee three, I suspect that it will ramp back up. Yeah, I can uh, only imagine. And, and it, it spilled over into a special session. But from my perspective, the Senate had the calmer heads and were able to kind of cool that whole thing down. Um, you, you just had a cross. Uh, you just had a bill cross over this week. SJR 0811 with Heidi Campbell, Democrat, pretty outspoken, progressive one, uh, to honor Beth Childs of Nashville. Who is she and why is she worthy of resolution to honor her memory? Well, those are our honorary resolutions that that members put forward. Um, and I, I, as a matter of fact, I, I don't even know the background on uh, Mrs. Childs and uh, most of those uh resolutions are honorific and they go into a consent agenda and so we approved that along with with the others so i'm not real sure even the background on, on miss childers okay and you also had uh sjr 0817 to congratulate joe d duncan on his 100th birthday uh 29 sponsors on that uh do you know who joe was uh well he lived to be 100 years old so obviously, <laughs> obviously that's, that's worthy of note fun. He, he, had, he did a lot of things right, and I supported his uh, his uh, doing everything right to make it to the ripe old age of 100 years. All right. Well, there are 33 Tennessee state senators, 27 Republicans, and six Democrats. So 88 uh, percent is pretty good bipartisanship for Joe uh, to get 29 out of 33. Um, must have been a well-liked guy. Um, Tennessee, Tennessee has a new legislative report card. And uh, you got a 79 out of 100, or they would say a B minus. Uh, Tennessee stands post that. Uh, do you agree with them? Your votes, and you're a freshman senator, uh, earned a B minus? I, I did see that. And if you looked at the bills that, that were included on that, there were only three that I think I got a thumbs down on. Um, and uh, right off the top of my head, I'm not sure I can remember all three. I, I know one was the constitutional amendment that would have allowed uh, the treasurer to invest in equities. Uh, that was, uh, it, it was defeated. I wound up, I voted for it. Uh, that was one of the ones that um, that was a thumbs down. And I think there were a couple others, but there were only three. Mm -hmm. And um, and obviously, you know, those, those scorecards, I think will get better over time as you, if you look at them in the aggregate, as you add more bills, I, I think you'll find that my, my grade will, will go up. Yeah, you got a lot of thumbs up, by the way, and and only yeah. one red thumbs down that I thought even mattered. So so that's an A from me, but but I think SB seven four five makes various changes relative to abortion was the one that kind of did it because that's where Tennessee stands are very anti against it. Any comments? Why you voted the way you did on on Esther Hilton Hayes's bill? Well, um, the that particular bill that was the. Um, after the trigger bill that they adopted prior to my arrival in the, the Senate, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they did that uh, back when Roe v. Wade was in place. And then along comes the Dobbs decision, which then uh, triggered the trigger bill, if you will, which banned all abortions um, in the state. And there was a lot of consternation about how do we fix that? Because there were, there were some that wanted to make sure that we included um, exception for life of the mother. There were yet others that wanted to uh, to make sure that we uh, protected um, against rape, incest, and and so forth. So Tennessee Right to Life negotiated uh, that bill, and where we wound up were 
uh, a few ways to protect the life of the mother uh, in the event that uh, that the pregnancy was not viable or uh, that the mother's life was in danger. And so uh, it was worked. It was supported by Tennessee Right to Life uh, and the uh, medical association and the hospital association. They they all reached an agreement, and that's that's why we uh, passed that bill. Mm. And so I, I guess because of that that litmus test or whatever that a rating uh or b minus rating you didn't vote for that was there something in there you didn't like uh, i know the left is making hay out of it right now no i did vote for it oh you did vote for it okay all right you wrote a letter yesterday january 23rd 2024 to the honorable attorney general jonathan scarmetti crime in shelby county has reached a crisis point you said he's um he's from the trafficking crime unit in memphis so he knows better than anyone what you say is true uh you conclude if the governor has the authority to assign judges from other judicial districts then i request he do so is there a judge shortage in shelby county is that one of the problems there's no judge shortage there's a shortage of judges doing what the hell they're supposed to be doing uh, we've got um, a handful of judges that are doing a really good job, and we have uh, judges that are, quite frankly, as as worthless as a toothpick in a meth lab. Uh, <laughs> they they will not do their job. I mean, you could go down to to two hundred one Poplar, which is where our criminal courts are, any day, and uh, they're not going to be there before ten o'clock in the morning. They're not going to be there after two o'clock in the afternoon, and uh, so. Uh, what I was, and, and by the way, pre-COVID, uh, Shelby County was having uh, 200 jury trials a year. Last year, we did 40 jury trials. Wow. And so the judges just aren't doing their job. And so what I was looking to do was to, to if those criminal judges don't want to do their job, uh, can the governor or someone else, and that's who I'm. That's what I'm looking for from the attorney general. Is if it's not the governor, who can we get to send judges into Shelby County Judicial District uh, that would take up that docket and start having some criminal trials, and um, and also because circuit court judges also have dual jurisdiction, they by law can actually uh, try uh, criminal cases. What is the trigger? For that, what, who is it that can authorize and demand that those circuit court judges go over there and start hearing some some criminal cases? So, that's what we're looking to do is really a starting point to find out what the lay of the land is um, and who has the authority to make that kind of of order. And mm. uh, it might, have to some, might have to impeach some of those guys. Well, um, and, and we do have one judge that probably is going to be impeached this this session um, because she was elected in 2022. And is yet to uh, to have a trial, and and she actually got involved, and in, I think she's got some uh, uh, drug abuse and different things that, that she's been reprimanded for. So she probably will be impeached and removed from office this year. Oh my goodness! Um, and do they run for election, or are they all appointed? And wouldn't that be Attorney General Scrimetti's job to oversee all the judges, or because he's appointed by the Supreme Court and not governor like the other places? He's not actually their boss, so the Tennessee Supreme Court is maybe ultimately responsible for them. I, you don't seem to know either who oversees them. Yeah, it, it's 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 a very good question. And what we have, we do not have a unified judicial system in Tennessee, and some states do. Where, uh, for example, the trial court and then the appellate court and the Supreme Court, and and they all are are uh, supervised by the Supreme Court or in some cases the governor. 
we do not have that in, in Tennessee. And it's almost as if all of our different judicial districts all operate in a silo. And I'll give you a good example. I know uh, Governor DeSantis, uh, you know, he talked about the fact that he had fired some uh, district attorneys and had fired some judges. Um, and it's because they have a unified judicial system in Florida, and we do not have that in Tennessee. The only way to remove uh, reform-minded um, DAs or judges is through impeachment and remove and a conviction in the Senate. So ours is is uh, is not uh, a consolidated system at all, and and that makes it really difficult to manage. And that's what I've run into is. As I've talked to different people in the state, they say, well, you know, they're an elected judge in Shelby County. It's up to the voters to des- you know, decide whether or not they want to keep them. Well, that's all well and good. And that that sounds really good and, and uh, democratic. But the problem is an eight year term, they can do <laughs> a lot of damage in eight years. Especially the one you just mentioned, you just got there. You got seven whole years to keep doing nice. these things. So what about the DAs and prosecutors? You wrote our criminal justice system under our district attorney and Judge Anderson chose to coddle criminals under so-called restorative justice. Rather than protect the law-abiding or even better, you wrote, I tried to understand it from Judge Anderson's point of view, but I can't get my head that far up my ass. Do you think he's corrupt? Do you think that system is corrupt? Well, first, I don't know that I don't, I would not go as far to say that he's corrupt. I would say that he is misguided in, um, in his uh, decision making. Uh, And Judge Anderson actually oversees our judicial commissioner program in Shelby County. And the judicial commissioners, uh, Steve, are, are like magistrates. They're, they're not elected, they're appointed. And, and that whole system is really designed to uh, relieve pressure from the elected judges so that they've got the judicial commissioners that can issue arrest warrants and search warrants and and can set bail. And so Judge Anderson manages that program. Well, he has publicly stated uh, in a meeting before the county commission in Shelby County where he said that the bail system in, in Tennessee that he detested. And so he has publicly stated his animus toward the bail system in Shelby County and uh, to give you an example of what that means is he had a first-degree murder suspect that was in his courtroom for a bail hearing, and he let a first-degree murder suspect out on his own recognizance. And uh, because he he's, he's clearly stated in his words that bail merely takes money from poor people, and so uh, which is unfortunate because for him to say that he has an animus toward the bail system, I'm a funeral director and and uh, by profession, that would be like me saying I have a I have an animus toward pallbearers. I mean, you I can't do my job without pallbearers, and he can't do his job without a a robust bail system. And so um, I've got several bills that will address that. It will address um, how judicial commissioners uh, are able to set bail. And it also, uh, I've got a bill that will remove Judge Anderson from the management of that judicial commissioner program and actually rotate it among the other general sessions judges on an annual basis. So mm-hmm. the idea being that these judicial commissioners can get exposure to different judicial philosophies and, and different ways of judges, uh, how they set bail and search warrants and so forth. So I just think it would be good for them to, to be exposed to other judges. Yeah. Hard to believe it's gone this long without that already. Um, 
Let's talk a couple of bills uh, out there. Tennessee SJR 0067, a resolution to confirm the appointment of William C. Rhodes III to the Board of Trustees of the University of Tennessee, signed, adopted March 20, uh, 20th. Uh, yep. Was uh, UTK part of the woke university class of doing surgeries on minors in their health department like Vanderbilt had to be shut down? And is Mr. Rhodes fixing that? Is that why you picked him? Yeah, uh, Mr. Rhodes, he is he is actually the uh, president and CEO of AutoZone, uh, which is headquartered in, in Memphis. And Mr. Rhodes is actually a constituent of mine. And uh, yeah, he, he is a conservative individual. I think he's one that that would uh, that would would fight against that. Um, and because we don't need these um, these woke universities and woke medical centers to be performing um, these transgender surgeries on uh on our youth and so uh we need to clean that up for sure okay uh i got a headline off uh, the web about you as the memphis area continues to battle against rising crime statistics state senator brent taylor republican memphis district 31 announced his plan to prioritize legislation that would help fight crime across the state crime in memphis is at a record high this year with numbers exceeding crime rates in detroit a city that shares many similarities with the Bluff City. Um, well, tell us about what motivated you to focus on that. I mean, it's kind of obvious you live in an area that's really rough, but what made you get into to politics to say, I'm going to solve it from there? Well, uh, I appreciate that. And, and you're right. Uh, it, you know, it, it crime is, is the issue in Shelby County. I mean, it's not only an issue, a public safety issue, but it is an economic development issue. Uh, you know, the, the state has uh, Blue Oval City, uh, or four, I should say, Ford has, uh, is going into Blue Oval City in West Tennessee, which is only 17 miles from uh, the Shelby County border. And it's the largest private investment in Tennessee history, tens of thousands of new jobs, uh, not to mention all the ancillary businesses that will go along with that. And we will not reach our full potential with that opportunity with crime like it is. As a matter of fact, uh, the state of Tennessee will not reach her full potential um, as when its most famous city is sliding into chaos. And so and I served previously on the Memphis City Council back in the 1990s. I served on the, the Shelby County Commission uh, more recently than that. And uh, crime is always, and we've always had crime, but it's always been manageable, but it has reached a crisis point where it's, it's no longer manageable. And so, uh, I, I have proposed several bills that will, will deal with that. I've also reached out to the governor. He has sent additional state troopers into Shelby County to, uh, patrol the interstates and to, uh, which will, will free up the city police then to, to go and actually, um, uh, patrol in the residential and business districts, uh, but Memphis needs a lot of help. And so what I have done, in addition to this legislation, and, and I've had a lot of people say, well, well, Brent, what what makes you think you can get people from other parts of the state to, uh, to buy into your legislation when it's really a Memphis problem? And so what I've done, I, I actually started back as soon as we got out of session last year and doing what I call Make Memphis Matter meetings. And so I've had uh, different commissioners down to Memphis to meet with uh, various stakeholders. I've had uh, Jack Johnson, the majority leader in the Senate down there 
uh, to meet with people about crime. Uh, mm -hmm. I've had different different uh, state senators. I most recently had John Lundberg from Bristol, Tennessee, down to Memphis. And when they come, they they spend all day. We meet with uh, business leaders. We meet with law enforcement. We meet with political leaders. Uh, we meet with uh, crime victims. And so that that these other senators can see that Memphis is more than a headline, that we are an asset worthy of, of the state's investment, but we need help. And so uh, I, I've really opened the eyes, I believe, to Senate leadership and to these senators that when I've come forward with legislation that they know that it's important to the community. And uh, matter of fact, the, as a result of my efforts, the business community sent a letter uh, to the governor and to uh, both both speakers, the House and the Senate, asking for them to adopt some of the legislation I've got in my my uh, slate of bills, but also uh, asking for the state to continue to invest in, in Memphis and, and help us fight crime. And the last thing I'll say about that is you take John Lundberg, who is from Bristol, Tennessee. It's important to get him to Memphis to see that Memphis matters because he actually lives closer to Canada than he does to Memphis. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I wanted to do is to make sure I could bring my colleagues down to Memphis and see firsthand uh, not only the problems we have with crime, but also the fact that we are filled with a lot of people who could live anywhere in the country they want to live, but they actually have chosen Memphis because they love Memphis and are committed to it and want to see it prosper. So I'm just trying to connect all the players so that when we are in session up here, that we can get those bills passed. I think it's great because what happened in my, my old city of Seattle is that the federal government had to come in and get involved in the police department. And I would much rather see what you're trying to do, have the state itself take care of its problem instead of having those feds who are even further away, closer to Canada, uh, telling everyone here what to do. Now, real quick, because I have a lot more questions for you, but Memphis is technically a border state or a border city. It's right next to Arkansas. Is Arkansas a cause of this problem or is Memphis really just a bubble and everybody's just kind of shooting themselves, you know, uh, no pun intended. No, uh, yeah, Arkansas is not the problem. And and uh, we also border Mississippi. Uh, Mississippi is, is not the problem. Matter of fact, we are causing problems for them. Yeah. Uh, because the, the criminal element in Memphis is, is going down into DeSoto County, or Crittenden County, Arkansas, or DeSoto County, Mississippi, and, and causing problems there. Uh, they have they have uh, DAs and law enforcement that take crime seriously, and so uh, it, it's done a lot to keep the criminal element out of those other border states. Um, we need that kind of law enforcement and that kind of prosecution in Shelby County and, uh, because we got to fix it in, in Memphis and Shelby County. And that's the perfect segue to my next question. Tennessee State Senator Brent Taylor says Shelby County District Attorney Steve Mulroy seems to be working with liberal justice reform groups in an effort to allow dangerous criminals to remain free by eliminating state bail. You talked about a judge that hates bail. What about a district attorney that doesn't even ask for bail? Uh, it is a problem. And, uh, and I have several bills this session that will deal with that. But one of my concerns I have with with D.A. Mulroy, and by the way, he and I served together on the county commission, so I've known uh, D.A. Mulroy for a long time, and and he is is genuinely a nice guy. I mean, he's a very affable fellow, and I, he and I get along fine. We just have different approaches when it comes to public safety and law and order. Um, but 
one of the, the concerns I have with his office is that he has entered into several MOUs, memorandums of understanding with th these different um, reform, ju justice reform groups, namely the Justice uh, Innovation Lab and the Vera Institute of Public Justice. And then locally, there's a, a, an outfit called uh, Just City. And if you recent, he's he's entered in the he's, he's entered into these MOUs with these organizations, and they actually come in and do training and are helping to set policy within the DA's office about what crimes the the DA should prosecute and and to help set uh, what they call affordable bail. And so I've asked for copies of all of those MOUs and any work products that it, that they have produced. Um, and because my concern is if you do, if you do research on those organizations, what you'll find, Steve, is that those organizations all have a stated goal to eliminate cash bail. And that is the exact opposite direction of where we need to go to create a safer community. And so I've got several bills that will deal with bail and to try to uh, make sure that we protect the public and that we remove financial status from a consideration of bail, because that's one of the things that they advocate is that, you know, people shouldn't have bail that they can't afford. Um, and so I've got ways to, that we're going to hopefully deal with that. But that's my concern with those reform, justice reform organizations and the close relationship that they have with our current DA. Okay. And after you asked for help in curbing crime in Memphis, Governor Lee, uh, his office announced uh, additional Tennessee Highway Patrol officers are going to be sent to, to Shelby County. Hopefully that works. But can you and Michelle Long, the administrative director for the Tennessee Administrative Office of the Court, rein in DAs like Bill Anderson and 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 I guess the one we just talked about, Steve Mulroy, yeah, Steve as nice Mulroy. as he may be? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, they uh, it's very difficult um, because it goes back to what I was saying earlier. All of these different aspects of our criminal justice system all act are all operating within these silos, and none of them have oversight over the other. Uh, I tell you, I came from the business background. I owned a bunch of funeral homes, as I may have stated earlier, and I this is no way to run a business. I can tell you, where every um, division of your business gets to operate and do its own thing. There's nobody uh, that's supervising the entire operation, and it makes it very, very frustrating to try to deal with it. So that's why I've sent so many letters and trying so many different things, uh, because you, you can't just attack the top. You're having to attack all these different silos to try to rein them in just to get them to do what, what they're elected to do. Yeah, you're going to need an army of forensic economists to see who's, uh, okay, I, won't, I shouldn't say that. Um, according to Shelby County DA's office, they work closely with the ACLU to try and create a system that we think is fair to everyone, quote unquote. The bail reform was implemented just seven months after the election of District Attorney Steve Volroy. Many say his position was bought with Soros money. This is from a news report, not me. I have no idea who he is. Reports indicate that under the new program, defendants will now receive a bail hearing within 72 hours of arrest. For the first time in the history of Shelby County, and it is not a young county, the bail program will not be cashless, and the bail will be based on person's ability to pay, to each according to their own, to, uh, which is set by judicial commissioners, the same commissioners that Judge Anderson supervises. That sounds messy. It is extremely messy, and it has caused a, a huge problem for us in terms of crime in Shelby County. 
Again, I have uh, some bills that will tackle that issue. Uh, one is uh, I have a bill that will remove financial status from consideration. So when they are setting bail, they have no idea, the judge or the judicial commissioner will have no idea whether or not the person can afford the bail. Um, you know, the, the Constitution says that we can't set excessive bail. And, um, and the Tennessee Constitution says that every offense shall be bailable except for capital offenses. And, uh, but nowhere in there does it say it has to be affordable. And so what they have done, they've taken it, they, they overcompensated by the fact that they're saying, okay, well, everybody needs to have affordable bail. So they have this Vera calculator and it's that calculator was created by the Vera Institute of Justice that I referenced earlier, that one of these organizations that the DA has a MOU with, they use their calculator. Well, Vera, as I said earlier, uh, their stated goal is to eliminate cash bail. So why in the hell would we trust their calculator? It's always going to skew mm. to the affordable side. So, time zero, time zero, time zero. Exactly. <laughs> so what I'm looking to do is to uh, have the judges and judicial commissioners to set bail without any consideration of the affordability. I mean, just set the bail. And uh, because what we have now, Steve, is if I commit a crime and I go to 201 Poplar and and somebody that, that is poor commits that same crime, they're going to get out with however much money they happen to have in their pocket Meanwhile, because I have some affluence, I'm going to have to make cash bail. And yeah. so it's not a fair system. It needs to be a system where if you uh, commit a crime, the judge is going to set your bail. And if you can afford that bail, you'll get out. If you can't, you'll sit in jail until you can find somebody to, to set your bail. And then it's the supposed other to be a, a deterrent, not like shopping at Walmart where you're looking for a good deal, right? I mean, um, but our friends at the ACLU, they, they've got they've got a hard on for you guys. Um, they warned Tennessee hospital over transgender treatment policy. Civil rights advocates say a Memphis hospital is no longer providing gender affirming surgeries like the law says they shouldn't. A move they argue is illegal and discriminatory. According to the American Civil Liberties Union of Tennessee, Memphis based Methodist La Bonheur Healthcare. Their website claims they serve more than 128,000 adult Medicaid patients each year. Tennessee lawmakers banned gender-affirming care for minors during the 2023 legislative session. Are they complying, or is the ACLU, you know, just trying to make a, a political issue out of it? Well, I think they're trying to make a political issue out of it. I, you know, I, I, I don't, uh, you know, trying to understand the ACLU is and how they arrive at their decisions will, will leave you, you baffled. I, you know, they're, they're all about, uh, they'll defend people's first amendment rights and fourth amendment rights and fifth amendment rights. But when it comes to second amendment rights there, you know, it's crickets chirping. Nobody, they won't defend our second amendment rights. So, uh, Barely first I, either if they're Republican or first, if they're Republican, but when it comes to ACLU and, and what I think of as good governments, I really don't give a damn what, what they think, uh, we're going to, uh, try to legislate uh, in, a, in a way that protects Tennesseans, that makes Tennessee a place that people want to live, and where we protect children from uh, these doctors uh, who are on some, you know, virtue signaling uh, crusade to people who up until just a few years ago was considered a mental disorder, and now then uh, we're going to say that that they don't have the mental disorder and that that I, for some reason, have to play along with their fantasy that they are some other gender. 
that if I don't play along, that suddenly I'm the one with some type of disorder. Well, I I, I just refuse to to play along, and um, and until we start treating uh, those folks uh, as they have a mental disorder, which is the case, it's a mental disorder, and you know because one of two things that happen if you believe them. If they were born in the wrong, if they have the right mind, but born in the wrong body, or it could be that they were born in the right body, but they have the wrong mind. And rather than chopping off body parts, I think we ought to concentrate on their mind, on their psychological issues that they have and their mental disorders and protect minors from making life altering decisions. And look, if somebody's 25, 30 years old or older and they want to have a, a transgender surgery, they can go knock themselves out. I, I don't care what they do, but uh, we need to protect children um, yeah. because parents, you, you take a child that's got this mental disorder, gender dysphoria, and, you know, it's not like they wake up and go to the doctor for the first time and the doctor recommends this. Those parents have, in many cases, have probably struggled for years with this child and with their mental disorder. And then they finally get in front of a doctor. Somebody walks in with a white coat and says, I think we need to do this. You know, those parents will do anything to protect their child or to save their child's life. And you have a doctor in a white coat that's coming in and saying, you know, uh, the thing we've all heard, you can either have a, uh, a live son or a dead daughter or vice versa. Uh, we have to protect against that because people are relying on these, on these physicians with the white coats because before they ever get there, they've had years of struggle with, with the mental disorder. So we just need to protect the minors. And once they become adults, they can, can do what they want. Yeah. Parentitis a little bit more than uh, gender dysphoria. Um, Trey Eubanks is the new president at, at Le Bonheur from Mississippi. I don't know if the former guy lost his job because of all that, but do you have an opinion of why Lee, and I know he doesn't choose this, but that hospital did, um, out of state people for big jobs. Uh, for example, the new schools are Lizette Reynolds from Texas took over Penny Schwinn from California, UC Berkeley of all places. Uh, and from Kentucky, we have Dr. Ralph Alvarado doing a fine job, but can't we find Tennessee homegrown talent here? You know, you raise, you raise a point that uh, something that I have been concerned in with my short tenure in the Senate. And that is, you know, I served on the city council, as I mentioned earlier, and on the county commission. And one of the things that we did on the council and the commission is when the mayor had his division directors, which is the equivalent of his cabinet, uh, he would make the appointment and it would come to the city council and the county commission and we would confirm those appointments. And then you look at the federal system where the president, he's elected, he has cabinet members, secretaries uh, that he will uh, nominate and the Senate confirms. But in Tennessee, uh, the governor makes these appointments for these commissioners with no confirmation or no input from the General Assembly. And uh, the concern I've got, Steve, is that we, we in the General Assembly, we set policy, the direction we want the state to go, and we fund that in the budget. Uh, and then we hand all of that over to the executive branch and the various commissioners to implement our vision our policies and to use the funding that we provide, we hand that over to the commissioners and uh, and we have no input into their appointment. And now 
the other thing that's that's interesting in Tennessee, you know, our constitutional officers, which are the state treasurer, the comptroller, and the secretary of state, they're all uh, confirmed or appointed by the General Assembly. We vote on them. And I guarantee you, I could call Trey Hargett right now, our secretary of state. I could call him on my phone. And in, if I don't get him the first time in 10 minutes, he'll be calling me wanting to know what I need. Or the comptroller, Jason Mumpower, or David Lillard, the state treasurer. It's because we are involved in appointing them. I could call a commissioner right now, and I probably not only would not get a return call, uh, they wouldn't take my call, and I probably wouldn't get a return call. And most of the commissioners probably wouldn't even know who Senator Brent Taylor is. I think what we ought to have is more input from the General Assembly, at least a confirmation vote when the governor makes these appointments. And I actually have an attorney general's opinion from 1983 where the AG then opined that the legislature has that authority and we could do that by statute. So that, that may be something we ought to look at before the, the next governor um, is elected uh, as to how much input we want to have into the commissioners and whether or not we want to uh, require a confirmation process. I, I, I think that would that'd be great. Wrap it into the emergency powers bill and try to curtail some of that too, as we experienced during COVID, like between the two of those, we can actually have the next governor be a little bit more beholden to the voters. Um, Satan club, an after school Satan club is coming to Memphis schools. 47 of the satanic temple chapters are across the U S announced that the club will be held at chimney rock elementary school elementary school everybody in cordova near memphis uh two groups are sponsoring the club the reasonable alliance and the satanic temple do we have to live with that for some free speech law or something or can those two groups be kicked out well that's what they claim they claim we have to live under under uh some free speech um, um rule it's my understanding, as I have looked at, it's my understanding that that, that satanic uh, club, uh, that they actually find schools that allow, uh, and at Chimney Rock, they have a uh, an after-school program that's a Bible-based after-school program. And, and so this satanic club, uh, satanic temple, they go around the country looking for instances just like that. And their, their, go their goal is not really to have to operate a, an after-school club. Their goal is for the school system to do one of two things, either uh, oppose their application to have that there so they can sue, or it's for the school system just to say, you know what, we're not going to have a satanic club, and if we have to kick out the other uh, Bible-based club, then we'll do that, and that way nobody can use our facilities. That That's what their goal is, is to, for us to either say no so they can sue us, or to just to kick out everybody so that we can't have a Bible-based club. Um, I a think legal, a legal trap, a catch 22 right. using our elementary school kids as pawns. That, that's correct. Terrible. And, uh, I think the school system in Shelby County, I think they capitulated too quickly. Um, obviously I, I was not a decision maker in that. I, I would have, I would have told them, I said, tell you what, I'll let y'all in with a satanic club when a judge tells me to. And, uh, but instead their attorneys looked at it and, and, uh, agreed that they probably, did not have a legal leg to stand on, but you know, some things are just worth the fight. And I think that would have been one that was worth the fight to me. And and like I said, I, I would have opened the doors when a judge told me to. Now we have to see how many more schools have to allow it because the precedent has now been set. Uh, CJ Davis, police chief Memphis, formerly from Georgia, 
another out of towner. I'm an out of towner, so don't get me wrong. I'm not saying they're all bad. They they just you know they do this. And we wanted uh, you to lock the door when you came in, though. <laughs> I, I try not to say like, "Hey, I was the last one." You know, out there, it gets worse from here. But um, they just added interim to her title, interim police chief, uh, after the vote to reconfirm her was tabled by city council on Tuesday. That's yesterday, at the suggestion of Mayor Paul Young. Um, what's that? And is she doing a good job, better than her time in Georgia? Well, I'll, I will uh, will say, first of all, uh, C.J. Davis, I have been in meetings with her. She is uh, uh, a very charming person and uh, and seems to really understand law enforcement and, and has uh, she's committed her life to law enforcement. Uh, I think when she moved to Memphis, um, a lot of a lot of bad things happened that were not necessarily her fault. Uh, I think, you know, we had the uh, Ezekiel Kelly, we had um, um, uh, Cleotha Henderson, who committed that awful rape and murder. And then you had Ezekiel Kelly who went all over town shooting people and doing it on Facebook Live. And then we had the uh, Tyree Nichols murder where the five police officers um, beat and, and killed Tyree Nichols. All of that happened and uh, and it got blamed on her. And uh, now, uh, Appropriately so, she's the head of the organization, and and she has to be responsible for that. So, fast forward to Mayor Young being elected, um, you know, from my standpoint, if I had been elected mayor, whether you think C.J. Davis has done a good job or a bad job, if I were the mayor, I would have wanted to just change the optics, to send the message to the community that look, what we've been doing hasn't worked. We're going to go in a different direction, and I would have uh, probably looked for a new police chief, um, and uh, and allowed the process to to move forward. So, but the mayor, he he knew he wanted to reappoint her. It's his call to make, and the city council again, just what we're just talking about. They have confirmation, uh, and so they were able to weigh in on that, and the council has decided that they don't want her on a permanent basis. So the the compromise they reached is uh, to make her interim and uh, that the council can vote at a later time to make her permanent, but this will give her an opportunity to see if she can get crime turned around. Um, so but, almost like a probationary period or a uh, ultimatum, like you're interim now and you'll either be ex-chief or you'll be permanent chief, depending on the results, which is, I guess, good. It's meritocracy. That's right. And okay. and that's what, you know, that, I think that will work, but it goes back to what we were just talking about. In the General Assembly at the state level, we miss the opportunity to have those types of conversations and interactions with the executive branch because we don't have confirmation for the commissioners. The governor right. just gets to hire them and, and uh, hope that they do a good job and and they're implementing the policies that we set forward and that we fund and we just hand it over to them to do and we had no input in their their appointment. They, they feel like they work for him just like Attorney General Stramedi doesn't because he was appointed by the Supreme Court so he feels he works for them and you of course are beholden to the Shelby County voters. Okay, and one third of Tennessee crime takes place in Shelby. If we X'd out the FBI stats, we are the safest place on earth even though you know, D.C. and the media likes to paint us as the most gun violent red state, but Memphis has that problem. So if they could fix that, we would really be uh, we take away their argument that uh, guns are bad and Tennessee is bad and the South is bad. Um, the House Criminal Justice Subcommittee passed 
that not only would enhance the penalty for child rape to the death penalty, um, well, they just did that, it just passed out of committee. That's a heck of a deterrent and hopefully has that effect. What do you make of that uh, when it gets to the Senate? Will it pass? I believe it'll pass. I support that. Um, I had uh, someone, I had a constituent call me over the weekend that was opposed to it. Um, and their opposition to it was that um, that there are most child rapes are committed by a family member. And what they were saying is that that you're putting a child in a position that if they report uh, a rape, that uh, that 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 family member could be eligible for the death penalty and could be put to death as a result of the rape and that they think that uh, that it could suppress the number of, of reported rape, child rape incidents uh, mm. because of that. And, mm. and although I understand that argument, but um, the point I made to the constituent was uh, that may be true, but I can tell you years and years ago, rape was a capital offense. You could be put to death for rape. And we had far fewer rapes then than we do now. And so I just think the, the deterrent value of the death penalty for child rape far outweighs um, whatever downside there may be that that, uh, that somebody may coerce a child, which would be reprehensible in and of itself to coerce a child not to report something because the family member may be eligible for the death penalty. So I support um, the uh, the death penalty for that. I think it'll pass the, the Judiciary Committee where I sit, and I think it will pass the Senate as well. Okay, another one, um, a bill that expands eligibility for filing petitions to obtain lifetime orders of protection to include victims of aggravated stalking and felony harassment passed out of a Tennessee House subcommittee yesterday by voice vote. Two questions on that. Will the Senate pass that? And what do you think of uh, Senate not having voice votes, but Assembly does? Um, the, that bill, I, I suspect it will probably pass. Um, and I have not followed it as closely as I had the child rape bill. Um, but I suspect that that order of protection extending it to uh, lifetime will, will probably pass. And, and I look forward to that, that conversation in the Senate, uh, as it relates to the voice vote versus, um, roll call vote, you know, the, the, the Senate, we have roll call votes. Uh, the House, they have voice votes. Um, you know, I, I think uh, a, a good argument is made uh, when you have voice votes, it's a lot easier to kind of get lost in the weeds and nobody really knows how you voted. Um, I think it, in transparency, for transparency's sake, uh, I think it makes more sense to have roll call votes because constituents need to know how we're voting on things. And um, so I, I would be in favor of, of uh, roll call votes like we have in the Senate. Having said that, as a senator, it is not my place to tell them how to run the House. Uh, but you asked the question what I thought, and I think they ought to, uh, if they would ask me uh, and say, Brent, we're going to do whatever you say, I would say, let. Uh, I think you ought to have uh, roll call votes. Yeah. And I think sometimes they do hide behind votes. One of the most ironic ones was they were voting on whether or not there was going to be roll call votes. They took a voice vote and they and instead and then they didn't show it on TV. So you couldn't actually see how their mouths moved. So they it was unanimous. But it, that's kind of the iron, irony of it is like, well, if you're hiding behind voice votes, you just did it on whether or not we should have voice votes. OK, a pair of Tennessee Democrats are proposing to 
the state drop its grocery sales tax while increasing business taxes to cover for the expense. They played with that last year. They gave us a grocery store tax holiday. Um, just real quick, is this a good idea? Do we care about this? Is this something that the, all Tennesseans should should look forward to having free grocery taxes? Well, I, you know, we're there are several states uh, that that don't have taxes on on grocery uh, items. Uh, I remember last year, excuse me, last year when we were uh, voting on that bill, I, I asked um, in a, what they call a bill review meeting, which was uh, the Republican caucus meets uh, ahead of time to review the bills that we're going to be voting on and and to um, to have conversations about that. And one of the questions I asked was, wouldn't it be better rather than having a sales tax holiday where we just eliminate the taxes for you know, from August to October, why don't we just take that amount of money if we're going to do a sales tax holiday and just reduce the tax rate altogether um, and and do that all year long? Because my, my I think what happens is that the sales tax holiday, most people I think aren't even aware because they're, you know, not necessarily paying a whole lot of attention. They go in, you know, before the holiday and they pay sales tax afterwards. They don't, they're just looking at their total and I think it goes unnoticed, if you will, um, by most Tennesseans. So I would much rather just, if we're going to give up, you know, two, three hundred million dollars a year, just let's give it up. Let's give it back to them and, and, and lower taxes on everything rather than just the groceries. But um, I suspect that I'm hearing from budget committee chairman and from the administration that um, we probably will not be doing the sales tax holiday this year because this this will probably be a more austere budget than we we had last year. Mm, yeah, that's what Jack Johnson said, that the revenue was down a bit and they couldn't really afford that type of thing. But with inflation up, it sure would be nice. You'd be a hero. Um, at a Memphis area high school, a biological male using female pronouns, wearing female clothing, took what would have traditionally been a girl's spot on their homecoming court. You've spoken to others in the Tennessee General Assembly that agree with the prospect of a possible legislative solution to issue, issue such as this to issue anything going on to protect women in sports. Yeah, we, we have to do that. And what I just find so interesting is <laughs> after all the progress that we've made over the last uh, several decades of elevating women's sports, girls sports to be um, on par with, with boys and men's sports that we're going to turn right around and undo all that decades worth of work. And uh, and so we have to protect girl sports and we have to protect uh, these girls and women. And what I find interesting is we spent all this time trying to uh, convince us, our society that women uh, are as valuable as men and that women can do anything that men can do. And then because the world has lost its damn mind and people want to try to virtue signal toward that, that now we're telling women you not only can you be anything uh not only can men do better than what women can do but we can be better women than you can be and that's essentially what we're we're saying and so again the world's lost its damn mind and what we need to do is to bring back some semblance of of sanity and we need to protect um uh girl sports and uh and, and girls, and we need to to make sure that that our policies are followed. Um, you know, it wasn't they, that long ago that they called that the war on women, and they blamed Republicans. And Mitt Romney had women in binders, and yep. 
Donald Trump was grabbing by the you-know-whats. I mean, yeah. something tells me that had Mrs. Powell Dennis won, we wouldn't be hearing things like this from a conservative like you. Um, but a recent poll shows that 85% of conservative Tennesseans are not happy with the way the Tennessee legislature and Governor Lee are handling the illegal immigration crisis in the state. Um, do you have any defense of how illegal immigration is being handled or do you think they're right? More needs to be done. No, I think more can be done. Um, and I, I think the General Assembly is probably to the right of where the governor is on this. Um, and I've actually got a bill that I'm sponsoring this year um, that will require the sheriffs in all the 95 counties will require them to enter into a, a MOU with uh, Department of Homeland and uh, Homeland Security so that when an illegal alien is picked up on a crime, whether it be DUI or some other crime, and is booked into the jail, that um, that ICE has to be notified of that. Now, several years ago, uh, the state outlawed uh, sanctuary cities, and they authorized sheriffs to enter into these MOUs with Department of Homeland Security. It's my understanding that some counties did it, some did it. Um, my my home county, Shelby County, did it. They do have an agreement with with ICE. Uh, but other counties don't. And so my bill this year will actually require all 95 counties to enter into that uh, agreement uh, so that when we pick up uh, illegal aliens that have committed crimes that we're reporting them to ICE, because that's the quickest way to deal with them. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if they break the law here. That would be really good because Mark Green from Tennessee is the chairman of the Homeland Security. Uh, and for now, there's only a two vote majority uh, Republicans in, in D.C., but he is the guy now. So that would be great uh, partnership between his home state and the federal government. Uh, last question. You work in the funeral mortuary business. Um, are you seeing or hearing about these tight as ropes blood clots that embalmers are pulling out of uh, people that, that could be COVID vaccine related? Yeah, you know, I, I have heard of that. Um, and and two things, the reason I'm not a subject matter expert on that. Uh, one is I've sold my funeral business about two years ago. I had uh, my, I had an acquisition company I'd started about 20 years prior to that. And, uh, and I had grown it. I had about 10 different funeral businesses in Mississippi and in, in Tennessee. And we were actually, uh, I had grown it to the largest family-owned funeral service company in, in the Mid-South. We were doing about 5,000 cases a year. And I sold it uh, in January of 22. And then I started running for the Senate in February of 22. Um, so I, I sold my business uh, just kind of as COVID was beginning to, to come down. Um, that's one reason I'm not a subject matter expert. I'm kind of two years removed from it, two and a half years removed from it. The other is I, I, although I'm a licensed funeral director and embalmer, um, I had the business and I ran that I was the president and CEO and I was not in the embalming room actually embalming. So I never saw any of that firsthand, but I, I have heard of, of my embalmers and others, um, noticing that the, the clots, uh, we call them chicken fat clots because that's kind of what they look like. But uh, that those chicken fat clots are more prevalent now than they they were uh, pre-COVID. So wow. I, I don't know if there's an actual link, but it sure is coincidental that following the, the COVID vaccine um, that they're causing these clots. And the other thing I'll mention that that's not directly related to your question is I get notifications on my phone all the time. And I'm amazed at the number of athletes 
and um, and celebrities that I look up and they'll say that they have died at age 39 or 59. And nobody seems to like, why are all these people dying young? And uh, because they, I know there are far more of these young people dying now than they were before the, the COVID vaccine. So I, I it, it really warrants looking into. Um, and I don't know if there's an actual direct link, but it, it's worth looking at because clearly people are dying, at, you know, particular athletes and celebrities are, are just um, just you young know, people in general. Yeah. If I send you my bodily integrity bill, would you tell me if you think it's worthy of a, becoming a constitutional right? Uh, yeah. Send it to me. I'm not familiar with it, but I, I'd be happy to look at it. I, I wrote it for Washington state. I'll, I'll send it to you, but thank you, Senator Taylor. I really thank you for taking the whole hour with me. I really appreciate it. So we're at the end here. Tell everyone where they can go to find out more about you, follow you. I don't think you're on Twitter, but tell people how they can find you. Sure. Thank you. I, uh, you can follow me on uh, Facebook at Senator Brent Taylor. Uh, you can uh, also go to uh, Brent Taylor for Senate.com. Uh, you can uh, follow us there. And, uh, and Steve, I really appreciate you inviting me on. And, uh, and I really appreciate uh, you holding me accountable and others accountable because, you know, at the end of the day, we work for you guys. And, um, and, and I like being held accountable. And, and you started out uh, with my report card that I got from Tennessee stands and, 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 uh, and you sounded just like my mother when I was in school, he's like, you did good, <laughs> but you need to do a little better. And, uh, and I promise I'm going to work on that for you. Well, I'll tell you coming from Washington state when everybody there would have about an F, if not a, a D minus minus, um, you are a breath of fresh air. So thank you, sir. I hope to have you on again sometime and, uh, uh have a great week. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Steve. Thank you. With Columbia, Tennessee-based EnergizeHealth.com, you lose fat fast, simply and naturally, without restrictive exercise or cardboard, dry, tasteless food. Revolutionize your health with this proprietary 88-day science from John and Chelsea Jubilee. People report getting off medications and reversing ailments. Energy, mental clarity, and alertness go through the roof. Look and feel many years younger and oftentimes unrecognizable. I know. I'm an alumnus and lost 70 pounds of fat with John and Chelsea and wouldn't have energy to do three shows a week without it. Hit the link in show notes for your free consultation and discount. Money back guarantee so you have nothing to lose but unhealthy fat. EnergizedHealth.com I don't Steve and Steve segment of our show where we talk about what we just heard. What did you think of our guest, Senator Taylor, producer Steve? Uh, it's amazing. Um, Steve, you're doing a great job of just bringing on these individuals, the senators, the congressmen, the reps of of, of Tennessee and people. You, you should have tens of thousands of viewers because they're, you're getting the straight scoop stuff here, folks. Spread this show to everybody you know, because if you're in Tennessee, there's no other show that I know that's actually doing intensive, deliberate interviews of their politicians, of the people who represent them. 
in office. And Steve, you're just doing a bang up job. It's just wonderful to be on this side and hear these interviews and go, who else is doing? I know Vince has been doing it on our side up here in Washington State. And uh, he's kind of like an extension of you. But uh, folks, Steve is doing a bang up job. And no one else that I know of is really doing the intense. They're not doing, you don't do hit pieces, Steve. You don't bring somebody on and crucify them. You're bringing them on and letting them share. You ask. And, and if they don't know, they can say, I don't know or whatever. But you're poking, you're prodding, and you're getting into the point of what's really going on in your um, your uh, capital. And uh, just, it's neat. I'm learning so much. <laughs> yeah. And when I call and ask them to come on, they've heard of me. So it's kind of cool. Um, how many presidents have we had, including uh, two terms equals two? Well, it's 43, right? But uh, 46. 46. Oh, that's right. 46. 17 were senators first. 37% of the time, Joe Biden, Barack Obama, Richard Nixon, Lyndon Johnson, John F. Kennedy, J Harry S. Truman, Warren Harding, Benjamin Harris, Andrew Johnson, James Buchanan, Franklin Pierce, John Tyler, William Harrison, Martin Van Buren, Andrew Jackson, John Quincy Adams, and James Monroe. I'm not a fan of senators as president. I prefer governors that actually have have to administrate a state government before they administer the entire six trillion dollar federal government like reagan and coolidge even congressmen like ford and truman had more responsibility than a senator i've said before the direct elections of senators the 17th amendment was the worst right in the bill of rights opening them up to corruption and graft should have stopped at original 10 the 17th amendment out of 27 ugh, to the United States Constitution established the direct election of United States senators in each state. That amendment superseded Article 1, Section 3, Clause 1, and 2 of the Constitution under which senators were elected by state representatives. Closer to the people who elect them. Okay. Case in point, Senator Bob Menendez and wife indicted on bribery charges. Department of Justice seizes gold bars and $500,000. New Jersey Democratic Senator Bob Menendez was charged on Friday with corruption-related offenses for the second time in 10 years. Menendez and his wife, Nadine Arslanian Menendez, are accused of accepting hundreds of thousands of dollars in bribes in exchange for the senator's influence, according to the newly unsealed federal indictment. Prosecutors allege the bribes include gold, cash, home mortgage payments, compensation for a low or no-show job, and a luxury vehicle. This is the second set of corruption charges levied against Menendez by the Justice Department in a decade. He previously fought off conspiracy, bribery, and honest services fraud related to alleged personal favors. Okay, case closed. Steve, just all right. Just real quick, not, I wanted to okay. interrupt. I wanted to interrupt. We're going long quick. today. We're going long. It's all right. Um, is I I had a brain fart because my mind went Bush forty three. So it was like Bush forty three. He, he was a governor. You're right. Actually, he was governor of Texas. He but added one but more. as for as as number of presidents, and it, it, my brain just went back in time, and I went. I was just thinking Bush forty three, and then I went, Oh no, we've had other presidents. It was forty six because you can line them out in Obama and Clinton, or not Clinton, but uh, Trump. And oh, then who Biden. we've had since Bush forty three? Yes, you've, yeah. You're a and so I was like, we, so we I only have a new one right now. Yeah. I should have known forty six, <laughs> but my brain went backwards in time, and I time warped. So that's why I said well, 43. a year from today we'll have forty seven. So you'll, 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 <laughs> if anyone listens back to this episode, they'll say you're still wrong. But you'd be right. <laughs> All right. First off, a heartwarming good news moment. Uh, leave it to sports. 
to bring us together. USA Junior Hockey Team praised for belting out National Anthem after winning gold. We love our country. The USA players went viral on social media singing the National Anthem after becoming world champions. Clip number one. Awesome. Absolutely awesome. There you go. Our youth, our youth. That's the savior of America right there. Um, Speaking of our youth and the adults in the room, back in the day, back when Steve was still counting presidents but on one hand or two, it, let's uh, listen to Richard M. Nixon and what he had to say about the youth of America. When, pray God, are these great, these leaders, the presidents of the great universities, just once, <laughs> going to speak up for America rather than speaking up for the enemies of the United States? Right. And okay. put a, lay it right to them. Okay. And what an example they're setting for their students. We can't blame, and he should say, we can't blame the students. The, the few students who, for, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, their activities here, when they are led by spineless, spineless, soft, uh, woolly-headed uh, faculty and, uh, and uh, university people with no courage, no guts, and no patriotism. <laughs> Was that real or spineless? <laughs> yeah, that's real. Spineless, soft, woolly-headed, no guts. Sounds a lot like uh, what we've just been dealing with at MIT, Harvard, and Penn, and many, many more. Um, how about a governor from the same state, California? What did he deal with uh, when he had to respond to the Berkeley riots in legendary fashion, I might add? People told you for days in advance that if the university sought to go ahead with that construction, they were going to physically destroy the university. Now, why did you negotiate many times? Negotiate? What is to negotiate? What is? University is a public institution. That's right. But the university, its own community, and for the community of Berkeley that live around it. All of it began the first time some of you who know better and are old enough to know better let young people think that they had the right to choose the laws they would obey as long as they were doing it in the name of social protest. That's right. That's right. When the adults were in the room, don't believe the lies. The UN is paying illegals using U.S. taxpayer dollars by social by Todd Benzman. Todd Benzman is a senior national security fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies. In 2021, early on in America's historic border crisis, he wrote that the United Nations was abetting the problem by handing out debit cards and cash vouchers to aspiring illegal border crossers on their way north. One outraged group of 21 border security-minded lawmakers pitched a bill that would require the United States, the UN's largest donor, to turn off the taxpayer money spigot. H.R. 6155 never caught fire, though, in no small part because fact checks from outlets such as the AFP claimed that the UN was doing no such thing. Ho uh, fact checkers lied. The UN's just released the 2024 Interagency Coordination Platform for Refugees and Migrants from Venezuela, R4V for short, a planning and budget document for handling out $1.6 billion in 17 Latin American countries. It confirms the UN with the helping hands of 248 named non-governmental organizations, NGOs, 
is indeed giving debit cards to illegal immigrants funded in large part by you, U.S. taxpayers. Despite the R4V plan titled named Venezuelans are recipients of this aid operation, the documents fine print footnote on page 14 and paragraph on page 43, for instance, says the largesse goes to all nationalities and multiple other nationalities. The documents clear up any mystery about what the UN and NGOs are doing on the migrant trails and leaves no room for supposedly debunking fact checks. In a nutshell, the UN and its advocacy partners want to spread $372 million in cash and voucher assistance, CBA, and multi-purpose cash assistance, MCA, to 624,300 immigrants who in transit to the United States during 2024. Now, the plan calls for 24 NGO partners to give money to 95,000 in Colombia and 59,000 in Mexico. Some of the so-called transportation assistance is for local cab rides to stores or doctor's appointments. But the UN agencies also know that aid will facilitate increased onward movements for 105,000 immigrants in Colombia, 25,000 in Brazil, 13,000 in Panama, and 3,700 in Mexico, to name a few places. With the United Nations and NGOs as fronts, the United States is paying for its own border crisis. It's a truth that can't be fact-checked away, he says. We've seen a lot of this before. The 60s and 70s were rough. No cable news or Twitter to shove in our faces 24-7. You had to wait until the evening news maybe to catch a glimpse, but check this out. Dwight. Ah, we already did that. That was Richard Nixon blasting Ivy League presidents in a yes. call with Pat Buchanan, arguing that the ultimate cause of the chaos on America's campuses was the spineless, awfully headed faculty. Okay, we already did that. DEA seizes greatest amount of fentanyl in agency history in 2023. Drug seize was enough to kill more than everyone in the United States. U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration agents 2023 seized more than 77 million fentanyl pills and nearly 12,000 pounds of fentanyl powder, the most the DEA has ever seized in a single year. Imagine how much they didn't seize. The quantity translates to more than 386 million deadly doses of fentanyl, enough to kill more than everyone in the United States. Last year, as the agency celebrated its 50th anniversary, it also transferred its organization and strategy. It said, quote, to meet this extraordinary moment in time as the United States confronts the deadliest threat our country has ever faced, fentanyl. <laughs> Anti-Semitic incidents reports in U.S. surged 360% after the October 7th Hamas attack. The American Jewish community is facing a threat level that's now unprecedented in modern history, ADL CEO Jonathan Greenblatt said. Uh, reports of anti-Semitic incidents in the United States surged by 360% after Hamas October 7th, 2023 terror attack on Israel. From October 7th to January 7th, the Anti-Defamation League recorded reports of 3,283 anti-Semitic incidents, which is a 360% increase from the same time period a year before in which 712 incidents occurred, the advocacy group said Tuesday, more than 500 incidents occurs on college campuses and over 240 were in K through 12 schools, according to the report. Additionally, the group reported recorded 60 physical assaults incidents and more than 550 vandalism incidents. With the exception of 2022, when reported incidents hit historic high, the number of incidents in the three months since October 7th have surpassed ADL reports from any year in the past decade. The American Jewish community is facing a threat level that's now unprecedented in modern history, ADL CEO Jonathan Greenblatt said. Not a fan of John Greenblatt. He took over for a good CEO, Abraham Foxman, 
Additionally, American President George W. Bush appointed Foxman to serve on the honorary delegation to accompany him to Jerusalem for the celebration of the 60th anniversary of Israel in May of 2008. This new one is totally into DEI and pro-Muslim like care and Muslim Brotherhood politics. He's a politician. He messed up by supporting gay rights and Boy Scouts and probably lost his job, the old guy, for criticizing Mel Gibson as an anti-Semite over Passion of the Christ. But this one is way worse Quote, in this difficult moment, anti-Semitism is spreading and mutating in alarming ways. This onslaught of hate includes a dramatic increase in fake bomb threats that disrupt services at synagogues and put communities on edge across the country. Greenblatt said, well, maybe if you didn't get in bed with the progressive leftist Democrats, this would not be as so bad. They would actually be listening to you. Okay, don't get pulled over in California. New California law allows non-U.S. citizens to become police officers. With the new year comes new state laws, including 2023 law that changed the qualifications to become a police officer in California. The San Diego Police Department has lost over 500 officers since July of 2020. That's dramatic. We need everyone we can, can to be able to be police officers. However, we are not in favor of reducing the requirements and lowering the standards, said Sergeant Jared Wilson, speaking as president and on behalf of the San Diego Police Officers Association. Wilson said they do have concerns about the new California law that changed the qualifications to become a police officer in the state. Prior to Jan 1st, 2023, you had to be a United States citizens or permanent resident to qualify for the job. Now that's no longer the case. Anyone who legally authorized to work in the state of California under federal law with the proper green card or visa is eligible to become a police officer. State Senator Nancy Skinner is the author of Senate Bill 960, which changed the requirement, quote, when you look at California rules, almost every other profession, lawyers, doctors, even firefighters are able to be part of that profession as long as they have full legal authorization, full federal legal work authorization. It was only our sworn officers we restricted that way, said Skinner. She added, ironically, in the military, you could be an officer in the military and you could not be a peace officer in California. So that's why we felt it was totally right to fix the rule. What could possibly go wrong, right? <laughs> So much can go wrong. Yeah. Surge of transition lawsuits pose threat to booming gender transition business. The biggest threat to gender affirming care might come not from state bans for minors, but from scared, scarred young women like Soren Aldaco, Chloe Cole, and Prisha Mosley. The three are among a growing number of people who have detransitioned. They were prescribed drugs and underwent breast removals in their teens to adopt an opposite sex identity and later realized they preferred their sex assigned at birth. Remember that, Steve? With yes. Chloe Cole? That's Kaiser they're talking about. We wish them luck. It's going to take um, material pain to stop this child abuse, I'm afraid. Uh, last story. The Fed's vehicle kill switch mandate is a gross and dangerous violation of privacy. You may not even know this. The claim that a new federal law mandates that every new motor vehicle includes technology that could disable the vehicle might sound preposterous, but it's actually true. Here are the receipts. Like most Americans, I had never heard of this alleged kill switch until a few days ago when Representative Thomas Massey, a libertarian-leaning Republican, proposed to strip the mandate's funding. The right to travel is fundamental, but the government has mandated a kill switch in new vehicles sold after 2026, said Massey. The kill switch will monitor driver performance and disable cars based on the information gathered. Hmm, I wonder what kind of information that will be. How much gas you're using, how fast you're going, what your credit score is. 
I also suspect mandating the installation of this technology is something Americans of all political stripes would overwhelmingly oppose on principle, put aside for now the immense cost of new vehicle purchases it will add if they knew about it, which is no doubt why the provision was surreptitiously slipped into a $1 trillion spending bill, which brings us to the raison d'etre of mass surveillance. The asymmetry of the surveillance state belies its true purpose to protect the government, not the people. That's right. That's exactly This is what a it toxic mister, yet most people seem largely oblivious to the danger it po poses. Americans love citing 1984, <clears throat> but it seems few have actually read it. If they had, they'd realize that the terror of living under a surveillance state was the primal theme of George Orwell's masterpiece, which was inspired by actual totalitarian states. Yes. Once one understands this, it becomes clear why many see grand potential in a law that requires every single new motor vehicle in the country to be monitored and potentially disabled by a computer, and why rent-a-cop fact-checkers would go through such coronations to contortions to downplay this dystopian mandate but none of that will matter if you can fill up your tank if you can't fill up your tank we may see thousand pound paperweights littering the freeways soon if people ditch their rides because they can't afford them with u.s dollars uae united arab emirates officially stops using dollars for oil trade the global financial landscape is witnessing a seismic shift as the United Arab Emirates boldly moves away from the U.S. dollar in its oil trade dealings. This strategic pivot, aligned with the broader ambitions of the BRICS Economic Alliance, of which the UAE is a recent addition, the changeover involving the transition to local currencies for oil transactions, marks a significant departure from the long-established dollar dominance in the global oil market called the petrodollar. The BRICS influence and UAE's strategic shift comprising Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, recently expanded its membership to include the UAE, along with Saudi Arabia, that's game over, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, and Argentina. This expansion signifies a growing inclination towards de-dollarization among these nations, a move that challenges the traditional hegemony of the U.S. dollar in international trade. The UAE's decision to prioritize local currency over the U.S. dollar in new oil deals is a clear reflection of this sentiment. This, moves, this move isn't just a mere policy shift. It's a strategic maneuver in the complex chess game of global economics. Okay, lots more to cover. Tune in tomorrow for more. And stay tuned for my thoughts of the day. Actually, I'll just blast right into it. Hi, this is Aaron Spradlin with the Mission America Foundation, and you're listening to Mill Creek View Tennessee Podcast. Hi, I'm Tennessee Attorney General Jonathan Scrimetti and you're listening to the Mill Creek View podcast. Be sure to subscribe to Mill Creek View. Just go to Rumble Spot up our iTunes, search for Mill Creek View and hit the subscribe button and then unsubscribe and then hit it again and again and again and it will be very popular. All right, if your action inspires others to dream more, learn more, do more and become more, you are a leader. John Quincy Adam, Senator Massachusetts, 1803 to 1808, and the sixth president of the United States, senators and presidents. Each time a man stands up for an ideal or acts to improve the lot of others or strikes out against injustice, he sends forth a tiny, tiny ripple of hope. Robert Kennedy, Senator New York, 1965 to 1968. Extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice, 
and moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. Barry Goldwater, Senator of Arizona, 1969-1987, never got to be president. I am a free man, an American, a United States Senator, and a Democrat in that order. Lyndon Baines Johnson, Senator from Texas, 1949-1961, 36th President of the United States. Not good. And then uh, that's it for this episode. Thank you, Senator Brent Taylor, for reminding us there are active senators and there are passive senators. You've been very active in your first term and doing a great job. That's it for this episode. Goodbye for now. I'm host. I'm your host, Eva Bromlitz, Editor-in-Chief of MCView.us. See you all tomorrow. Peace in our time and glory to God. Any views or opinions represented on the podcast are personal and belong solely to the creator and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the creator may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated.